who would not darken the door of a church. When I made that joke in the beginning of my sermon about, you know, some of y'all are scared to come in a building because you're afraid the rafters would fall in, I was looking a guy in the eyes that I was talking to because I know how he thinks. But uh, anyway, it was awesome. And then we like to show people that as Christians, you can have a good time without getting drunk out of your mind and without drugs and without a bunch of uh, wicked things taking place. It's okay for Christians to enjoy themselves. I know that's shocking. But that's why we have church in the morning and we, we hang out and party in the afternoon. Nothing wrong with a good party. Right? Nothing wrong with a good party. So we partied it up in the afternoon and no hangover the next day. Now, after the amount of fumes you're breathing tonight, I can't promise that you won't have a hangover tomorrow. But I think it's loosened us all up tonight. Don't you feel better just sitting here for a few minutes? I feel like I'm starting, my nerves are going away and all my anxieties and who knows what I'll say tonight. But go with me to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter number 2. As you can tell, there is construction uh, underway on the building, and uh, it's about to get messier. They're about to start demoing out there in the foyer. We're going to open that whole area up back there uh, as an entryway and a coffee bar, and uh, just making room for people is what we're trying to do. And so excuse the mess for a little while, and uh, if, if you walk in and there's some dust on the floor, don't blame me. I'll, I'll show you who you can blame, but I ain't going to say it publicly, even though I'm staring at him. Just don't look in his direction. But anyway, uh, no, but uh, exciting things going on, and we're happy about that, and uh, just looking forward to what the Lord's going to do. So with, uh, with us being in this transition phase as we're, as we're bringing two bodies together, um, two bodies, by the way, who are already a part of the same body in Christ, ultimately on a universal basis, but... Uh, we're coming together as as one corporate body, and uh, I hope you understand at least. I don't think I understand it fully, um, but I hope I hope we can all start to kind of wrap our hearts and minds around the magnitude of what the Lord is doing in our day and age. It's it's, it's really insane. I don't know how to tell you how crazy it is, uh, but crazy in the best way possible. What the Lord is doing and has done in hearts, and so. Um, but with that in mind, I thought from a practical perspective, it would be important for us to sort of uh, just spend Wednesday nights together discussing what the church is actually supposed to look like. I'm of the opinion that, especially in America, we have gotten so far off track as far as churches are concerned as to how a church should function, what a church is really all about, uh, why we even exist. Why does the church exist? Why are we here? Um, if, if it's just to get together, and trust me, I love being in your company, I love your fellowship, but we can do this anywhere, right? We can hang out in my field. I got, look, y'all don't know this, but I'm a big rancher, and uh, I want you to count it with me. I've got one, two, three, four acres, and uh, we could hang out, out out there, and we could have a bonfire and, and just enjoy being around each other. But, but is that the purpose of the church? And so we're trying to answer those questions. And a lot of what I'll deal with will be very practical. Some of it, as we looked at last week, how's the church supposed to be structured? How's the church governed? Business is the necessary evil of a church. We don't like to talk about it, but you have to function as a business. So how do you operate the, the business of the church? Is that up to everybody who shows up on Sunday morning to worry about that stuff? Uh, or does God delegate leaders uh, as stewards of, his, of what he calls his, his vineyard or his husbandry and, uh, and the church? So tonight we're going to look at more of the spiritual aspect of the church. I don't know that I'll get through this entire portion of the series this evening, um, but you know I'll do my best, right? 
So look with me in Acts chapter 2. Did I tell you all that already? Acts 2? Okay. Let's start reading in verse number 1. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's an important statement. In verse 5, it says, every nation under heaven at that time, all of the known world at that time was represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Verse number 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they all were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, or Pamphylia <laughs> Egypt, and, uh, and Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now, my next, my favorite part of the chapter comes next, where verse 13, they mockingly said, these men are full of new wine. Peter said in verse number 14, essentially, I'll paraphrase, uh, on down through 15, he said, they're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He qualified that if it were later in the day, eh. <laughs> but anyway... That's the comedy right there in Acts chapter 2. But we're going to deal with this tonight. We're going to deal with the subject of the church, specifically the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the New Testament church. Um, I, I want to apologize in advance. I don't have slides. They couldn't get them to upload tonight. We're making upgrades uh, to that system as well. So, but as of late, we couldn't get the, get the slides to up, upload. So I'll quote the verses to you. You can write them down. So if you have a pen and paper handy, you might want to, want to be prepared because I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have to gather in this place. Thank you for these people. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it, it's not any kind of superficial language to, to really try and articulate how, how, how magnanimous uh, this, this move is of your spirit. God, we, we stand in awe at the exceeding abundant outpouring of your blessing on this community. We're unworthy, but Father, we're thankful and we're humble just to be a small part of something so much greater than ourselves. Lord, we honor you. Jesus, we want to magnify your name. We want the world to hear the gospel. And I pray tonight that you would help us as we gather together as one body in Christ to be unified, to be of one heart, of one mind, of one spirit. I pray that you'd guide us and direct us by your goodness and by your grace. Help us understand this concept tonight. Grant us your wisdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the, the context of Acts chapter 2 begins actually with the ministry of John the Baptist, specifically a promise that, that God made through John in Matthew chapter 3, verse number 11. Here was one of John's messages. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
So one of John's prophecies was that the one who would come after him, which we understand to be Christ, our Messiah, he said, he said I baptize you physically in water, water baptism, but the one coming after me is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And then if you look just at the previous chapter, in Acts chapter number 1, verse 5, as Jesus was about to ascend back into heaven, he left his disciples with this promise. He said, for John, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the question that I want us to ponder tonight, the hypothesis is, what does this mean? When John prophesied that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit, and with fire, and then Jesus reiterated that promise and said, essentially, this is about to happen. What John prophesied and foretold is about to be fulfilled in your presence not many days from now. So, so the question is, what does it mean? What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to say, first of all, baptism in the Bible has two significant meanings and applications. One is physical baptism, and the other is spiritual baptism, and it's important that we, that we know how to delineate between the two. One of the many errors that people make in biblical interpretation is, is not rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul instructed Timothy. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we take certain passages mentioned in certain contexts and try and apply them in the wrong context, Right? One of those being, and I've taken criticism for saying this, but one of those being that, that, uh, that when the Bible talks about being born again, the, the terminology used in reference to a person being saved or being born again uh, exemplifies for us the reality that salvation is a gift given to us by the mercy of God, that it's freely offered to the undeserving. That's you and me. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're not saved because we're worthy. We're saved because Jesus shed his blood as the propitiation for our sins. And so when you study passages in reference to salvation, we read things like, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. We read passages like Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. We see that salvation is a gift given by God to the undeserving. And so all we do to, to be born again and be redeemed is put our faith and trust in Christ. It is a gift given. It's not a goal achieved. It's a gift received given by the mercies of God. However, when you begin to dig into the concept of discipleship, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you read things like where Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. I've got good news. You're not saved tonight by taking up your cross. You're saved because Jesus took up his cross on our behalf. But discipleship is cross-bearing. Discipleship passages say things like, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Discipleship passages, Jesus made statements like, unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother in your own life, you can't be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't instructing us to hate anyone. He was just explaining that, but that being a disciple is a sacrificial life that you have to lay down your life and pray, not my will but thine be done. And so we have to delineate between these passages and these concepts. You follow me? And so when it comes to baptism, it's important that we understand there are two different types of baptisms represented in the Bible. Actually, more than that if we wanted to get real specific. But, but, but the two major references to baptism is one physical and one spiritual. And again, these are important that we understand the difference. So the word baptism is actually a Greek word. Did you know that? 
It's a transliterated Greek word. Transliteration means that they took a word from another language and, and, and really just created a new word in our language. So baptism was not in the English language. It comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to be plunged, dipped, or immersed, specifically immersed. And the reason why the English translators chose to transliterate that instead of translate it uh, is because under the authorization of the Anglican church who ruled, uh, there was really no separation of church and state in those days, uh, they, they didn't want to offend the Anglicans by, by, by interpreting the word baptizo as to immerse because they knew that they baptized babies by sprinkling. And so to say immersed every time baptism was mentioned in the scriptures uh, would have violated the Church of England. So they transliterated the word to baptizo, but the word still means to be immersed. So in the physical application, baptism means to be immersed in water, right? Baptism means to be physically immersed in water as an outward expression, simple way to say it, baptism is an outward expression of an inward change, those who gladly received his word in Acts chapter 2, we see were baptized. I don't see any reason for a person to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and not follow in baptism unless there's some physical ailment that would keep them from doing so. Baptism is a vital part of our relationship with Christ. We're born again by grace through faith, but baptism is us expressing outwardly to the world, I'm not ashamed of what Jesus has done in my life, and it identifies us with Christ. We're buried with him in baptism, and we say raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism doesn't cleanse sins, but it does represent the fact that I'm dying to my old self, and I am now being raised to live this new life for Jesus Christ. And so we understand that in the physical sense, baptism means water baptism, but in the Bible when baptism is used in the spiritual application, baptism is a mystical act performed by God's Spirit on those who have placed their faith in Christ and been saved. And so we're going to, in this portion of our series, be dealing with the Spirit baptism uh, and just sort of see what it means according to God's Word, because at the end of the day, that's all that matters, right? So some see Acts 2, let me just throw this out at you, uh, because you know I've heard all these debates through the years, but some people see Acts chapter 2 as the inception or the birth of the New Testament church, while others contend that the church existed with Jesus and the apostles. I tend to believe that Jesus and the apostles had, that, that, that Jesus started the first church. Uh, he's the head of the church. We already looked at Matthew chapter 16, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to squabble over it, because, because either way, it's safe to say that the events that took place on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, after these events, the church itself and the world abroad has never been the same. And so what's important as we try to study this, and again, this gets a little, 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 little heady, okay, so stay with me, but, uh, but w w as we study this, I think it's, it's vital first and foremost that we, that we examine what is Pentecost. Is it a denomination, <laughs> Right? It is, but that's not where the word came from. Uh, but when we think of it, we think of a, 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 of a, of a denomination that, that traces back to the Zuzu Street Revival, if you've ever studied your church history. And, and, but that's not actually where the word Pentecost came from, although they identify heavily with Acts chapter 2. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, Pentecost, um, actually in the Bible, is also known, if you go back and study the Old Testament, Pentecost is also known in the Bible as the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks, a.k.a. Pentecost, has been celebrated every year since the time of Moses. So it's nothing new. This is a historical celebration that the Jews actually still observe, but, but it's taken place since the time of Moses, hear me out, exactly 50 days 
after the Feast of Firstfruits, according to Leviticus chapter 23. So if you want some good reading when you go home and get ready to lay down for bed tonight, break out the book of Leviticus and, and eat your heart out, all right? It's great bedtime reading. But, uh, but Leviticus chapter 23 specifically lays out sort of the timeline, how these feasts were supposed to, to, to be held and observed chronologically. And so again, I'm going to reiterate this just because it, it's very important to the conversation. The Feast of P Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, uh, is celebrated exactly 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, understand this, that, that all the Jewish feasts that were given under the law of Moses in the Old Testament were in some way pointing to Jesus. So if you ever get into studying the Old Testament feast, actually the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, all of it pointed to Jesus, but the feast all had a significant prophetic view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so beginning with the Passover feast, we understand uh, that the Passover was a picture of God's redemptive plan uh, through Jesus Christ, right? So if we go back to Exodus chapter 12, am I going too fast? Sometimes I feel like I talk too fast. Okay. Uh, if we go back to Exodus chapter 12, this is where we discover uh, the feast of the Passover when the people of Israel were, were being held as slaves in Egypt for some 420, 430 years. Uh, slaves in Egypt, God sent his servant Moses. Moses means to be drawn out. God sent his servant Moses to draw his people out of Egypt. He went to Pharaoh. You know the story. You've probably seen the flannel graph. If you went to vacation Bible school as a kid, right? How many old school we got back here before PowerPoint, right? We had flannel graph back in my day. Uh, but anyway, uh, but, but you know that God sent the plagues in Egypt, nine plagues. Pharaoh still wouldn't repent. He still wouldn't relent and let the people of God go. So God sent one final devastating plague, and that was the plague of the death angel that would cross or pass through the land of Egypt. Uh, but God always in judgment makes provision and mercy. And so God's provisional mercy was given through the, what we now know as the Passover lamb. Exodus 12 explains that the lamb had to be without spot and without blemish, pointing to the sinless perfection of Christ. In Exodus 12, we find that the lamb's blood had to be spilled as an atoning sacrifice for sins, just as Christ's blood was spilled on the cross for our sins. Exodus 12, we also see that the lamb's blood was sufficient to guard each household from the impending doom of the death angel. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 13 is one of my favorite Old Testament passages. It says, now the blood shall be a token for you upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. How many old schoolers do we have in the room that remembers the song, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I love that concept because it's such a beautiful picture of the fact that when the blood of Christ is applied to the door of our hearts, that we don't have to fear the death angel. We've been set free. And so Exodus chapter 12 is the beginning of the feast of the Passover. It began there, and since that day, it's been celebrated by the Jews throughout history. So after the feast of the Passover came the feast of firstfruits. We're going somewhere with this, right? Is it, is it that point in this little lesson that you're going, where is he even going with it? Uh, we're going somewhere. So after the Passover feast came the feast of first fruits. The feast of first fruits took place on the day, you might want to take notes because this is important and it's thrilling when you see it laid out in, in chronological form. So first fruits took place on the day after the Sabbath day that followed the Passover. Hear me out, three days after the Passover exactly is when they would celebrate the feast of first fruits. Now you understand that, that after the first, I won't get into that. 
I got a whole thing about when Jesus was crucified the week of the Passover, but we don't have time for that tonight. Uh, but anyway, Jesus was crucified as the Passover lamb, and, and exactly three days after the Passover, they celebrated the Feast of Firstfruits. Fifty days after the Feast of Firstfruits was the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Pentecost from, comes from the Greek word Pentecoste, uh, which literally means 50th. What does Pentecost mean? Pente means 50, okay? Pentecost literally means 50th. So, hear, hear this, all right? I will go this far. Did you know that Jesus was crucified on the Passover? He was crucified on the Passover, and we know this for many reasons, but one specific thing is, is that they understood that his body had to be taken down from the cross before the Sabbath day. Now, a lot of people mistake that for the seventh day Sabbath that the Jews observe every week. But the week of the Passover was unique in the fact that the first day after the Passover was what they know, uh, what they consider to be a high holy Sabbath. It's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The day right after the Passover is, the, is a high holy Sabbath. And so when it said they had to receive his body or take his body from the cross before the Sabbath, it was a reference to that specific day. So Jesus died as the Passover lamb, and then three days after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead on the Sunday morning after the Passover. Now hear me out. The Sunday morning after the Passover, which was the exact day when they celebrated the Feast of first fruits. Did you know that after his resurrection, Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights before he ascended back to heaven, and he left his disciples with the command to stay in Jerusalem until they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Did you furthermore know that exactly 10 days after Jesus ascended back to heaven with that injunction, his spirit descended on the church on the day of Pentecost precisely 50 days after his resurrection? I think God knew what he was doing. And, and, and certainly those early disciples, the apostles, put the pieces together because they wrote things like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 7, Paul said, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Later in the same book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20, he said, but now Christ is risen from the dead, listen, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the apostles understood Old Testament law, and certainly the Apostle Paul was an expert in Jewish law, and Paul knew that Jesus died as the Passover lamb, he resurrected as the first fruits, and now it to them began to make sense. They could clearly see that salvation was not in keeping the law, that the law in fact was pointing them to Christ all along, and he didn't come to destroy the law, he came to fulfill it and be the completion of it. And so, the day of Pentecost is recognized by Jewish historians as the day when God originally gave the law to Moses. You start to dig and study all this stuff is very thrilling to me because we understand how all of the, the, the mosaic and the landscape fits together. So, so again, Jewish historians believe that the law of Moses was given on Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost. So I want you to notice the similarities and contrast between the giving of the law at Sinai and what occurred in Acts chapter 2, and it would be a lot more effective if I could put it on the screen for you, but I can't. So just listen carefully, and, and you can turn there certainly, but I'm going to read it kind of quickly uh, because I've only got 45 minutes left. So um, 
in Exodus, so just think and listen, okay? Because you know, you know what we just read in Acts 2, and we're going to read it again in just a second. But, but notice the contrast and the, and the similarities. Exodus chapter 19, verse number 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In verse number 16, it says, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain greatly quaked. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, and became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, with that backdrop, read with me again in Acts chapter 2, and notice what happened on the day of Pentecost. In verse 1, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as God gave them utterance. And of course, we read a moment ago they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. He went so far as to, to list the different nationalities who were there, and it says they all heard the wonderful works of God, and they were amazed in verse 12 and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So, so we see that, that when God gave the law, there was smoke, there was fire, there was trembling, the earthquake, and God manifested his presence in a very unique way, just as he did in Acts chapter 2. And so the question then is, what was the significance of this miracle? In Acts 2, what, what was so significant about this miracle that, that every man understood in his own native language? Why is it so important that we see that? Why is it so vital that we understand that? Well, if we were to look back in Genesis chapter 11, and yes, I am going all over the Bible today because this is a flyover lesson, right? But if you went back to Genesis chapter 11, we find the record of an event that took place at the Tower of Babel. Y'all remember that story? At the Tower of Babel, uh, something happened that changed the landscape of, of history. And, and so we understand prior to that event, up until that time, the entire human race spoke one universal language. There were no language barriers, right? Everybody, under, everybody spoke the same language. They were of one tongue. And, and, and so they understood each other without there being any need for an interpreter or translator. Everyone spoke the same language. But at the Tower of Babel, the human race had evolved intellectually, but at the same time had, had grossly devolved morally. Man had grown so exceedingly evil and rebellious toward God that they began to worship their accomplishments and building idols to their egos. And so at the Tower of Babel, what was intended to be a monument to mankind was essentially thumbing their nose at God, saying, we are as great and as powerful as you are. Because they determined in themselves, they said, we can, we can build a tower all the way to the heavens. 
And so in their arrogance and their egotism and their pride and their lack of understanding for their, their need of God, they began worshiping their own accomplishments. And so they were building this monument saying to God, we don't need you. And in response, God sent judgment on them by dividing them up into language groups. And they were from that moment, therefore, segregated into different groups, and they were thereby divided where they could no longer converse with each other outside of their own nationality. They didn't have the ability to talk to an iPhone that could translate their, their language, right? They were divided into language groups. They were segregated into language groups. Now, here's the, here's the importance, and this is, again, how this all binds us together, ties together. Pentecost was the undoing of that division, the reason why God, through his Holy Spirit, gave them the ability to speak in such a way that every nationality represented on that day could hear in their own language is that it was God's mercy being poured out where he says, I've removed through the cross of my son the judgment that's been placed on the world, and I want you to know now that there's a new language known as the language of grace that everyone can and should hear and understand. And so instead of confusion, God gave them continuity and unity. And now, because of the door of the gospel that had been opened by the Holy Spirit in exchange for a high and lofty mountain of laws that no one could climb, God's presence became the universal message of redemption to all who would put their faith and trust in Christ. Y'all get that so far? Which, by the way, guess who God used to preach the message that day. The most unlikely candidate of all the apostles, the one who denied Jesus, the one who deconstructed, the one who shamefully walked away, the one who saw himself as being so broken that he could never even be considered a disciple again when Jesus rose from the, from the dead, he said, go call my disciples and Peter. It's not because Simon Peter was no longer a disciple, but he was so sorely defeated, he thought he could never be used of God, and he's the very guy that God used to mightily move this world with the power of the gospel. The one who walked away, Simon Peter. There's so many sermons in this sermon that we could be here all night, but, but here we go. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is introduction into next week. So what does it mean in conclusion? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13, the Bible says, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. This is the mantra that we preach. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. In Christ, everyone is equal. Now, that's something you could have amended and you missed a great opportunity. In Christ, everyone is equal. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. And again, that doesn't mean there aren't distinctions. Please, that's another sermon for another time. We obviously understand there are distinctions between men and women. Again, that felt like a softball pitch, right? There are obvious distinctions. We realize that. It's not that we don't recognize obvious social distinctions in the world. But the fact of the matter is nobody's better than anybody. We're not on some social hierarchy where there's a big I and a little you. We are one in Christ. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit said to the Jewish people, you're not righteous because of your religion. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit says to all self-righteous religious people still today, which again is another one of my mantras, is that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's the good work of God in our hearts that we're, all, that we're here. 
And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we understand that we've come together as one body in Christ. And then notice this, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Again, I'm sorry it's not on the screen, but it says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. It's in the Greek. And so we, we realize, and here's the essence tonight. Let me just give you a practical application, and, and I'll be done. And I'm, I'm actually quite proud of myself that I got through all that. But I know it's a lot, and I hope you're able to take that in, but it wasn't something I wanted to take six weeks to unpack, so I figured I'd just talk really fast because you're, you're quick, right? But, but here's the essence. I like that, ha, because that sounded very doubtful. Uh, but but here's, the, here's the essence of it all. Listen to me. Whatever we do is futile, even if we do it under the banner of good works and religious deeds, if we do what we do without the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're wasting our time. We have to have the anointing, the power of God's Spirit on our lives, in our church, which means we have to be unified as a body. One of the earmarks of, of just practical application of what took place prior to Pentecost is 120 people who had, who had witnessed the grace of God, who were partakers of the mercy of God. It says they came together in one place. We do that often. Here's what we fail to do. And in one accord. And that's not a Honda Accord. Okay? Was that a lame joke? That was a lame joke. Sorry. Sorry. It's the fumes, okay? I'm high as a kite. The f I'm, I'm elevated more than y'all. Uh, you're down there in the safe zone. I'm up here getting wasted. Uh, but, but, the, but the reality is, the reality is we have to have the power of God's Spirit. And we've got to lay egos aside. We have to lay our, 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 our agendas aside. We have to lay our, it's going to hurt. Our desire for comfort aside. Y'all were with me on the first two points? We are creatures of comfort. We love comfort. But comfort is a quiet killer. If we're comfortable, we are, obviously, if we're comfortable, we're not doing something right. I'll tell you who was comfortable. Revelation chapter 3, that Laodicean church. Think about this. The Laodiceans said to themselves, we're rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. Now, it's okay if you say that in reference to material things, but, but in their heart, they had it so programmed out and so figured out and so scheduled out, they didn't even need God. And so God said that type of a church will be rejected. The terminology he used was, I will spew you out of my mouth. And here was the counsel, and this is what a lot of guys, I've heard sermons on Revelation 3 on the Laodicean church many times. Here's what a lot of guys skip over. Jesus actually gave counsel how to remedy that. But nobody likes it. Because here's what Jesus said. He said, I counsel you. If Jesus says, I'm going to give you counsel, you better listen. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, he said, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire. You know what that means? It's what Peter was talking about when he said, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. 
He said, you need to let me put you through some stuff and make you uncomfortable. Fire is uncomfortable. He said, you need to let me get you to a point where you're out of your comfort zone so that you'll need to lean on me. I'm going to tell you one of the greatest destructive things within the New Testament church is the fact that we've just gotten very comfortable. And so tonight, the message is this. We're going to elaborate more as we dig into it further but we need the same power that fell on the day of Pentecost. We're not trying to replicate the events. That was a one-time event. And again, I've had people get mad at me for that. But Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost was a one-time event. What happened on that particular day? We're not trying to replicate that. But what we do need is the same power that they had. And the power was given to them to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. I did all that with two minutes left. My gosh. I don't like to pat myself on the back, but that's an accomplishment. So let's have a word of prayer. Would you stand with me? And I just, I just want to pray over us, and I know this isn't the extent of us represented here tonight, but I just want to pray that, uh, that God would work in us and that his spirit would fill us and that he would direct our steps and that he'd use us for his glory. I really believe something big is on the horizon. I genuinely mean, I don't say stuff like that. If y'all know me, I don't make big bloviating you know, claims. I genuinely believe God's about to do something big. And so let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts in your presence. Father, to, to, to know you is to be humbled by who you are in your majesty, your glory, your might, your power. But Father, in all of the vastness 